Well, have you, I wonder, ever felt really painfully out of context, like you don't fit, like you're somewhere you really don't belong? It can be a very uncomfortable feeling, can't it? Uh, especially when you're young and, you know, everything's kind of new to you. I, I remember feeling that way um, when I first went to a club in my teens. So I'd lived in a pretty sheltered environment growing up. Our family never really went to pubs at all. Uh, on rare occasions, we would perhaps go to some, one of those more family-oriented places, like a beef eater or a harvester or something, and, and we'd have to walk through a bar, and it was a very alien environment to us, but not much else. And then when I turned 18, and I fell in with a bit of a dodgy crowd, <coughs> I, I remember going with a bunch of mates into the Ipswich Town Centre as a teenager, uh, and it was late on a Friday night, and we visited a number of different pubs and clubs. And I discovered the music was absolutely deafening. Uh, the girls were flirty. The blokes seemed to be just on another planet, mostly. Uh, and, but they all seemed to be in their element. Like, they were just really enjoying it and having a good time. But I felt totally out of place. I felt awkward. I felt really uncomfortable in that setting as a young person. That might not be your experience. But it was, for me, a really alien environment for me, an alien culture, a world very different from that to which I was used to at that point. I felt like I had absolutely nothing in common with the people around me, uh, and of course I just wanted to get out of there. Now, I remember later on in life actually doing a, a little, uh, it was an exercise given by the church for a group that was involved in evangelism, uh, and the person leading it was trying to get us to to, to get under the skin of what it might feel like for an unbeliever coming into our church and set a little challenge for each member of the group to go that week to a betting shop <laughs> and to put a bet on one of the races. Didn't matter what, just, you know, five quid on a horse. And, and the, ex, the idea of the exercise was how you feel doing that, that's going to be how others feel like when they come amongst you. Just don't know what to do, where to go, what on earth's happening, and it's just a really bizarre and weird and uncomfortable environment. No one likes feeling like they don't fit, do they? Uh, and I guess that it's not unusual in that kind of setting to react in one of two ways in life. Either you decide you're going to become a chameleon of some sort, and embrace that new environment and assimilate yourself into that culture, so you can make that decision. Or, and this is what you largely see, you either see that or you see people ghettoizing themselves and taking refuge amongst those that are much more like you are, and you huddle together in that little, that little group. Uh, I mean, you know, you see this all over London. We've just moved up from London a few years back. You find that in London, and, and in other big cities too, it's the same, but minority groups tend to clump together in little areas. And you know, you, you even say a, a, a name of a part of, uh, of London, and it's, oh, that's where the such and such community generally, that's where they live. You know, Southall, well, that's going to be the Indian community. Or where we live, near where we live, New Malden, it's Korean. You know, you get all of these, you go to Wimbledon, oh, they're the South Africans, they live there. <laughs> and you kind of know that's where those demographics will be. And people struggle because of that to learn the language and they stick in these little communities where everyone looks and speaks the way that they do. And even the shops are selling products from their own home environment. And then you get, even get churches like this. 
very interesting. So as, I was, if, as you'd walk around Kingston, where I used to minister, you'd find lots of churches where the congregation has shrunk really, really small. They were, they're finding it hard to support what was going on in the building. And you'd find on their notice board suddenly a line written in Korean. You think, oh, what's that mean? They've actually got a Korean service. They're renting out their building for a Korean service for a Korean pastor in Korean. In, in Korean. I mean, just completely like it added on as a separate entity. Nothing to do with the church, just another church planted into them. Very interesting. And you find that all over. Now, of course, not everybody goes down that route. Some people do make the effort to learn language and join indigenous churches. We really made an effort to try and do that in our own church there. Now, in case you think I'm being just a little bit, you know, is he being a bit xenophobic there, you know, having a go at these communities, let me just say that we Brits do exactly the same thing. We do this. Sarah and I lived uh, for a year or so, nearly a year, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And we got to know a good number of other sort of expats, white, with a white sort of British community. And our experience was that even those living in the city as missionaries chose an English-speaking international church to attend on a Sunday and did exactly the same that these groups uh, uh, do here. And, you know, in one sense, it's easy to understand why. Because it's really hard to integrate into a totally foreign culture. It takes a lot of work. You know, take, take a look at this, uh, this picture here, the first picture I've got up on there, Dan. I mean, that, uh, in the rural setting in Tanzania, that's a church. That's the church building right there, the baobab tree. Because it's a nice big tree, and it's going to give you shade. But putting up a building is, is quite an advanced option for a bit later on down the road. But that's your local church. And that's very alien to us, isn't it? Uh, and it's really hard to integrate into that. We, we actually did end up in an indigenous church in the suburbs of the city. It's in a little area called Bugaruni. And uh, at the start, when we started trying to go there, everything was incomprehensible. I mean, there's, there's a picture of the, the little group that, that we met with. This was our, our Sunday church, I think it's there. That was our Sunday church in a little school. It took six months I mean, we were almost going home at that point before we could vaguely follow a Swahili sermon. It was really, really hard. But the singing in that context was, shall we just say, enthusiastic. I mean, I'm not even really a hand raiser by, by nature. That's not how I was brought up in my sort of normal environment. Uh, and, and, you know, these services, people were dancing, uh, th and make, they would, as they're singing, they'd make this sound just randomly at random moments. Of, I don't know why they were doing that. It was really weird. And it didn't seem there were, that there were any rules about who could bring a drum to church either. People just wander in, you know, half an hour late to the service with their drum and sit down. And they were going to bang it in every song. Now, I say all this so that you are not... You don't judge too harshly the slow, faltering beginnings of the spread of the church that we read about in Acts. It was all Jewish to start with, and it spreads to Jew and Gentile, and that's hard, because it's a big cultural shift. And those verses that we're looking at today, we just had read to us, they chart there actually a crucial development. I think now that's why, I want you to see that that's why that passage is there. It's a crucial piece in the puzzle here. The development in the spread of the gospel to non-Jewish nations, non-Jewish people. 
So here is how it really all got started. And we've had the first sort of Gentile converts, haven't we? But this is how that whole missionary movement gets off the ground. Verse 19, have a look. Now, those who've been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It's a missionary movement, do you see? And so Luke's taking us right back to how this all gets going. We're back, you know, that first verse there, we're back to the persecution of Stephen to set the context, aren't we? Uh, and, And this new movement, these followers of Jesus, at that point, they are all safely contained and I guess almost sort of ghettoized in one place. They're just in one city up up to this point. And then Stephen is stoned to death and persecution breaks out in the city. And it's, uh, I guess I picture it's a little bit like, um, you know, where you've got a, a chip pan fire going and you want to deal with it. And what do the authorities do? Well, they throw water on the chip pan fire. And what happens? Suddenly, the flames all spreading out. That's the kind of the picture you're getting here. It's like trying to stamp out a fire in the long, dry grass. It's just going to spread and go spreading out. And that's what we see, and it's exciting. But as that happens, Luke tells us about two distinct groups here in these first two verses. Have a look with me. Two groups of scattered disciples. The first are in verse 19. And these are the play-it-safe kind. And we're told they travel widely... But they're only telling that message, their message, to Jews. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, these cities. Like everywhere in the empire, they all had their synagogues, their segregated Jewish communities huddling together. And that's where this first team go in verse 19. You know, Judaism was the only state-sanctioned non-pagan religion that existed in the Roman Empire. For everyone else, you know, it's paganism uh, and, you know, uh, sacrificing to the genius of Caesar, as, as they said, offering the incense to him. The only people exempt were the Jewish communities. They were given a special concession, allowed to, to an extent, do their own thing. And this first group then, they're the play-it-safe group. So perhaps, perhaps that's a little harsh. I mean, it's, it's hard what they're going through, isn't it? They've left their homes. They've gone out, and they're telling the gospel. So you'll remember, actually, that there were already two cultures within the Jerusalem church, two groups. We saw them in chapter 6. You've got the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and you've got the Greek-speaking Jews. And it could be, actually, being fair to this, rather than calling them play it safe, these could just be that they are particularly Hebrew-speaking Jews, not good with Greek. And so they go where they're going to be understood, perhaps. But then you've got this second group in verse 20, look. And now they're certainly Greek speakers because of what they do. They're from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is Greek-speaking. And they come to Antioch, and that's where they set their sights on the Greek community within the city. So you've got this first group that keep it low-key. And let me just point a couple of things going on in the text here. 
when you look more closely at it, that first group, the word used for telling the gospel, telling the good news in verse 19, means just to speak. Uh, they get, they're, they're chatting, they're talking with people as they encounter them. They found those who'd listen, and they shared the message with them. You can picture them. They sat down with people just like them. They got the kettle on. They got made a cup of tea, and they explained the gospel to them as they got to know them. The second group, they're much more a kind of we're on a mission kind of group. And the word telling, again, you know, same English word, but in verse 20, it's a different word. It means they proclaimed, they heralded the good news where they went. So you've got this first group that just talking with people, spreading it by talking, and another group that are just shouting it from the rooftops. They want people to know, and they're just telling it out loud. So now take in the big picture of what's happening here with this group. Antioch, the big city, it was on the uh, Orontes River, bordered with modern Turkey. There's a picture of it there, an artist impression, I guess. It was hailed, actually, as the third greatest city in the Roman Empire by the historian Josephus. Uh, To give you some idea, it was about six kilometers across. That's a big size for a city. A population of about half a million. So that's probably five or six times the size of Chesterfield. Imagine that in the ancient world. It's a big deal. And it boasted lots of large gardens and parks and a shopping street, to get you excited, that was three kilometers long. Three kilometers of shops, goodness me. And one writer, a guy called uh, Juvenal, living at the time, a poet, referred to its reputation as a city for immorality. He wrote of the Orontes River, the river going through this city, pouring pollution into the Tiber, the city that, you know, the, the, the river of the city of Rome. He's saying here, Antioch had even polluted Rome, that's what he's saying. The pollution of Antioch spreads right into the empire. It had lots of Eastern superstition, cult prostitution, all of these things that accompany the worship of their gods, Daphne and Apollo. Now, this was not a city then that a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl would feel at home in. For these Jews, it was a really alien environment for them. And as usual, with every city of a decent size, there was a Jewish quarter to the city, and it was estimated in these days to be about 70,000 strong, a place where Jews could settle and probably huddle together, put up their walls of separation that we've been talking about recently, to keep from being contaminated by the Gentile culture that they're living in, so they'd be able to still keep their diet, do regular visits to the synagogue, where there'd be recitations of the law and they could keep their Sabbath observances and work within their communities. You you get the picture. But this second group of missionaries, these verse 20 group dispersed from Jerusalem, they they come here and they're actively preaching, not to that 70,000, funnily enough, but they're going to the rest and they are preaching to them. Luke tells us, and it's lovely this, they simply proclaimed the good news about the Lord Jesus. That's what they're doing. And that note, as he says that, that is to say, they did not come into this city preaching morality. They didn't come in preaching a list of do's and don'ts. They didn't preach religion. 
how to impress God with hard efforts and rituals. They didn't tell people how to become Jews. They simply preached Jesus. I think that's significant. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is their message. That because of his staggering love for us, undeserving sinners like you and me, we can come to God, to the God who gives us our every breath, because he has given us his precious son, Jesus. You and I deserve eternal death, but the sentence fell on Jesus so that you and I might have eternal life. Simply turn to him. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. Put your trust in him. Bring your sins to him and be washed clean and live for him and walk with him from then on. That's good news, isn't it? That's the message they're preaching. And it's good news for Greeks and it's good news for non-Greeks. That's why they're preaching it. It's a simple message. It's a message that's full of hope and they're proclaiming it into a dark and broken city. A city that is polluted with wickedness. A city that actually, when you think about it, is full of despair. People all living after their own gods and finding emptiness in it all. Steeped in a pagan culture. Temples and amphitheatres and a circus. A culture that's a million miles away from that of Jerusalem. Addicted to all manner of vice. And look at verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them as they go into that environment. Out of their comfort zone. Really, out of everything familiar, they go into this pagan setting and they preach. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So what do you think? It's great stuff, isn't it? But do you think that's something you could do? Do you think you'd be up for that? Share some good news with people around you, so different from you, so needy, so desperate, so dark. You know, actually, when you look at what they're doing, it wasn't, it's not presented as being anything particularly clever. Okay, it's brave. I get that. It's brave, isn't it? But it's nothing clever. It's not something, actually, that only a select number of them could do. The reason people believed, we're told here in this verse, is not because of their skillful speech or their clever arguments or, or, or because they were able to conjure up some kind of special experience for people. It was because the Lord's hand was with them, just as he promised to be. He was with them in preaching the gospel and proclaiming it. I wonder, you know, we, we challenge quite often about, we need to get the gospel into our town. We need to get the gospel to our neighbours. Do you ever feel discouraged in that? I, I know you do, because we all do. And you might be like, you know, like me, you say, you know, okay, you know, I know that telling the gospel to people is like sowing seed. I get that picture. That all I can do is, you know, put it out there and, and wait for God to do the growing. And I get that principle, and I hope you do understand that. But you might be saying, look, I did that. I did it. I mustered up all my courage, and I had a go. I tried it with my friend at work, and it didn't take. Am I then just not, not gifted enough? Am I doing something wrong? Is perhaps 
this kind of evangelism is just not for me. Am I, am I, am I just a failure? Well, can I say to you, and, and I, I think this is right, that if the message was right, there's my caveat here, you, you probably didn't do anything wrong. You need to persevere. So you planted a seed and nothing came of it. What do you do? You plant more. You plant more. If you want to see a harvest, you've got to keep throwing out the seed. That's the principle. Yes, God is, God is the one that makes it grow. We have to throw it out there. And I don't want to discourage any of you here who find this to be a really hard thing to do, because it is. You know, there's two groups here, and I think this is encouraging, this two groups thing that we're seeing in this text. One group that stay in this sort of little Jewish allotment, poking holes and placing seeds very, very carefully into their little, their little patch of ground. That might be your speed. So don't give up. Pray for those individual seeds and, and keep on just steadily planting more. Persevere until you see fruit. But then you've got this other, this other group, and they're wonderful, really, as well, aren't they? But don't be discouraged if you're not quite in their speed, in their category. They went to the field, and they're just throwing the seed out there. Their, their hearts have been moved with something that moves God's heart, a passion for nations. And suddenly, out of nowhere, growing rapidly, the first Gentile church is formed because of what they do. It's exciting stuff. And... As we move on, we find in verse 22 that news of this, this wonderful news really, gets back to Jerusalem, verse 22. Uh, and we get this little discussion, don't we? Have you heard what's going up in the north in Syria? Did you hear some guys from Cyprus and Cyrene who left from us? They've been telling Greeks about Jesus and tons of them are becoming disciples more and more every day. And so what do they do? Well, they don't just ignore it. They send Barnabas. I mean, at the moment, we, the jury's out about this whole thing, isn't it? It seems down in Jerusalem. What's going on? But listen, there's something, something here. You don't send a man like Barnabas if you want to just simply give them the third degree, do you? You don't send the man nicknamed the son of encouragement to this movement if you're trying to pick holes in it. No, when you send a Barnabas, you're wanting to encourage something, aren't you? And that's exactly what happens here. It's lovely. And so they send Barnabas because he's an encourager. And it might maybe also because Barnabas is a Cypriot himself, just like these people who've gone out. You know, it's your, it's your people, Barney. You know, you need to go and, go and see what they're up to. Go and see how it's going. However, when he arrives in verse 23, have a look at what happens. He saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You know, these remaining verses here actually tell us some crucial things about how right at the start these early disciples handled the addition of new people groups and new cultures into the church. How do they handle that? How's the gospel going to reach the nations? What kind of ground rules and foundations will keep that mission on course? Let me show you three things just in, in the verses we've got here that stand out. First one is this. The first thing is they had one gospel. 
It's fairly obvious, isn't it? One gospel, one message to which they didn't add any other extra addings or extras or trappings. So here comes big Barnabas into town. You know, you could almost feel as he comes into town, oh, the inspector has come. That's not what he's come to do. Well, he comes, I suppose, a bit, but he's an encourager. He's come from the headquarters in Jerusalem. What's he going to have to say to this group here? Have they missed something? Are they doing anything wrong? Are they doing everything right? How is he going to further instruct them to integrate these new believers into this Jewish sect, as it's become known, that they've joined? What extras can Barnabas add to advance these new believers and move them on in their faith? What's he going to do? Some new interesting teaching? Verse 23, he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That's it. It's wonderful. No food laws, Barney. Nope, no food laws. No rules for how to be holy like the Jewish community, how to keep separate. Nothing new about how or when or how often we should meet or, you know. No, 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 just stay true to the Lord with all your heart. Barnabas, do you see, he just cuts through all the non-essentials. What's the big thing here? Guys, you've received Jesus as your saviour and as your king. You're his people now. You're citizens of his kingdom. Now remain true. Stick with it. Don't doubt. Don't turn back to where you've come from. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Run for the prize with all your might. And give your whole heart to him. That's it, isn't it? That's his message. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I guess he's quoting that. Do that and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you, brothers and sisters. You know, it's, it is to our shame if we ever complicate the message of what it means to follow Jesus and make it more than that. That's it at its heart, isn't it? We must never be like, it's another warning, isn't it? Don't be like those dreaded gospel adders, the poisonous adders. Do you remember them? They come along with all kinds of rules and poison. If you're, if you're confused about what I'm talking about, just see our Galatians series where we meet the adders. The good news, then, is that all you need is Jesus. Nothing more. All you need to trust and obey is him. So that's the first thing. They had one gospel, one message. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they had one name. One name. It was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. That should be a wonderful word to us, shouldn't it? Christians. Now, apparently, that was a name given to deride the believers, to insult them, as if to make them embarrassed. That was the intention behind calling them that. The only two other occurrences of the name Christian in the Bible are said actually by unbelievers, and they're said with hostility. Do you think you can persuade me to become one of those Christians? Paul's asked in his uh, interview. Christian simply means of Christ, the people of Christ, people who are of the Christ, God's King, the Messiah, Christ followers, people whose identity actually essentially is all tied up with the Christ, Jesus Christ. And it was probably used in the same way that people today would say the Jesus freaks. 
It's a form of ridicule. But the disciples, you see, they just embrace it. Yes, that's us. The Christ-like ones. Yes. All about Christ. Obsessed with the Christ. Yep, that's me. My heart's all belonging to him. And the former distinction then between Jew and Gentile, do you see, now becomes no longer important, actually. God has kind of cancelled that distinction out. Now, there's only really two kinds of people from this day forwards. Only two important categories into which all human beings will fall into. Those who've believed in Jesus and those who haven't. That's it. One umbrella term to cover all those who have a new name, Christian. Christian. This is now the only distinction that matters. God's not recognising any others. Not nationality, not class, caste, gender, slave or free, rich or poor, good or bad. If you can't see that in the New Testament, you need your eyes checking. Just do you belong to Jesus or not? And so you see, we see here on these pages, the gospel then is colour, gender and class blind. God is no respecter of persons. God does not show partiality to people on the basis of where they've come from, colour of their skin or their background. If God has no other distinctions for, any, for human beings to be part of his church, then neither should we. Neither should we. So we can have, well, in the church, here's some things that we can't have for certain. We can't have impenetrable cliques and groups within God's church. I'm not singling anyone out. I'm just saying watch out for it. Mustn't let that happen in the church. The same way that there can't be areas of town or communities within our town, groups that we won't go to with the gospel because they're too different from us and it's too awkward and uncomfortable. There can't be people from any of these areas that we don't welcome and embrace as they come in the door. The gospel removes those barriers. This really is the answer, actually, that the world seems around us to be looking for, isn't it? For unity. All of the frictions and tensions between different people groups. The gospel dissolves it. The gospel removes those barriers. We're not part of a system that thinks that way anymore. Our passion is to see people, isn't it? Isn't that your passion? See people from all the nations of the world here together. We will be for eternity. As many as God calls through us, welcome. We want to see them all to cross over from death to life, to become one with us as part of his great universal bride, the bride of Christ, the church, one together. So you have one gospel, one simple, clear gospel message, and one name under which all these people who have received it and believed in the Lord Jesus have, have come. And finally, thirdly, one family, one universal, global church from all the nations whom we love like family. Do you know, I kind of wish I'd preached this next week at, uh, at the harvest service. I've now got to think of something completely different to do there, which just seems to be a bit of a waste, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But a staggering thing happens here in verse 27, look. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. 
This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, get get this. Try and get your head around this. Greek converts up in Syria, 300 miles from Jerusalem. Recent converts out of paganism, a completely different world, probably really didn't like the Jewish people living in their town. Probably didn't. Almost certainly. People who have never even met those disciples down in Judea, and they're expressing this generous love to them. So we have this prophet, Agabus. He arrives at the church in Antioch, and he brings this this prophecy of a severe famine that's going to happen across the empire. And the hearts of these new converts is immediately moved to consider the plight of their poorer brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters they've never met, don't know them from Adam, down in Judea, and they give. And look how Luke puts it. Each, says Luke, according to his ability. You know, they give what they can, they give what what they're able to. It's not like a legalistic kind of must-give 10% to help the brothers down there. No, it's, it's all I'm able. It's the all I'm able to of family giving, actually, isn't it? That's how, you know, you give when you know your brother's family won't be able to afford to eat next week. You're not going to see them hungry. You're going to look after them. I've got my brother sitting right here. Now, listen, it's easy to put needs that we can't see out of our minds When God brings them to our attention, we are to respond, aren't we? God's people, the church in the third world or or, or other places where there's persecution and difficulty or there's famine, there are brothers and sisters, there are family. And the glory of the church is that we care about them. We really do. We help, we give, we pray. We give even when we don't know the people, just purely on the basis that they are Christians. They're Christians. They're family. Now, this is wonderful and exciting, isn't it? It means that we are actually a huge family packed full of men and women and children from every nation, people, and color. Our family history as as, as Christians stretches back across the millennia. I want you to just, just get that. What a heritage. This is what it is to bear the name Christian. It's huge. You know, I've never even met them, but I have brothers and sisters, and so do you, in North Korea. Sisters who meet secretly in homes under the watchful eye of Muslims or communist governments. And right now, they need our prayer and our support. It was our brothers and sisters who were burned at the stake and fed to the beasts in ancient Rome. Our brothers and sisters. No, on our trip to Rome a few years back, Sarah and I uh, visited quite a few places there. Uh, and, and it's just lovely going around a city because you know the history a little bit and thinking to yourself, our family died here. Our family died there. You went out to visit the catacombs and thought, it was our family living under the ground in these tombs and caves and chambers, hiding. You know, in the Roman Forum, is this lovely little area. At the end, it's almost at the end of it. There's this um, little area. It's the house of the Vestal Virgins, who served as the 
uh, as the priestesses of Vesta. And there's this courtyard that has these statues all around it, these statues, of, and, and they are of the most famous and renowned of those women. Each of them has an inscription about them on the base saying wonderful things about them with their name and, and you know, who they were. But one of them, as you go round, and we, it's lovely, we had this little Christian guidebook written by some guy who does biblical archaeology. We had this guy, but you go round, one of them, the base, the inscription has been you know, just chipped away and removed. And that one there, there's a photo of it on the screen there, that's believed to be the likeness of Claudia, who converted to Christianity and was shamed and cast out of the order. It's moving, isn't it, to be there, to see that, and to think of her and how she stood for her faith. That's our sister. It's great, isn't it? It was because of the generosity and the love of brothers and sisters like this that the gospel finally makes it to us. And that baton has been handed down the generations to us. Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. Add nothing. Take away nothing as you preach that one gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. Maybe one person at a time, maybe scattering the seed. Don't neglect to go to people from every tribe and tongue and nation and call them to come into this one wonderful new family to belong to Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, may we not be the generation that drops the baton. Father, we thank you for those who faithfully passed on the gospel that was entrusted to them, who remained true, who loved the Lord more than their lives, who lived to spread the name of their King. Help us to follow after them and to be those who boldly share and proclaim that good news to our world. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, brothers and sisters, suffering for your name. And we ask all of this in the good name of our King, the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.